As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Thank you for joining us for the latest edition of the podcast, Run and Plays. We have a very special guest, Jim Barnett, James Franklin Barnett. Yes. It's so great to have you on here. You were a fan request. People absolutely love to hear your stories. And I was wondering if we could start with your time at Oregon. You love wow. the University of Oregon. What were those playing days like for you in college? Well, it was. Uh, I was really thrilled. I didn't know if, if I was going to be any good or not. I didn't know, I had a lot of scholarship offers. I had scholarship offers to UCLA and SC and Cal and Stanford and Washington, all the schools. Uh, but Oregon recruited me first and I got on an airplane and flew up there on a weekend. It was the first time I'd ever been on an airplane. Mm -hmm. I was 17 years old in the spring of 1962. And um, I knew that they wanted me and so uh, I went to all the other schools as well. I went I think five or six weekends in a row. Uh, I will tell you a funny thing. I got recruited by Texas Western, which is later UTEP. Mm -hmm. okay. And my senior year, they upset Kentucky and won the NCAA championship. And you might have seen that movie, Glory Road, mm -hmm. you know, five black players against Adolph Rupp. Adolph Rupp coached 35 years at, at uh, Kentucky and never had a black player. Okay, mm -hmm. so it was a lot of that in there. But if I'd gone to Texas Western and played, see, they couldn't have made the movie. Huh. It would have screwed up. <laughs> we do want to talk about the era that you were playing basketball in. Um, but you are in the Ducks Hall of Fame. You're in Oregon as a State's Hall of Fame. And I love the way you talk about the state of Oregon. Why does that place have your heart? Well, it just, um, it was a place where I essentially grew up. I was a pretty naive kid. Uh, I was a good kid and had good grades and everything. I wanted to... Uh, go to college, get a degree, and I did get a degree in four years. What did you mean? What was the degree in? I have a degree in recreation management. What's that? Yeah, what is Well, if you have a park and recreation department, you have ah. to have a director in a town, and, and that's so my degree is in, in the, it was in the uh, Department of Health, Physical Education, and Recreation. Okay. Uh, so, which was a lot easier course, by the way, than physical education. <laughs> you had to take all kinds of tough courses. That everybody think, would think, oh, PE is easy. That's no. a pretty hard, hard thing. Uh, my, my curriculum was pretty easy, to tell you the truth, in, okay. uh, in recreation. But um, I really, I never, I wasn't worried about the degree. I remember later on, I didn't care. I just wanted to get a degree. And I never thought about playing pro ball until I was a junior at Oregon. And when I decided, when I was, I could see that I was getting you know, really, really good. Uh, and I was good when I went there, but you have all these guys who are all state from Montana. This guy averaged 26 points a game. And I'm thinking, man, this guy must be really good. But I went to a big high school in Southern California, so I was really prepared, but I didn't know those things. So I get out there with a guy who's, you know, all state for two years in a row and averaged 28 one year and 32 another. 
and he couldn't get a shot off over me. He was 5'10 and slow, mm -hmm. you know, because he'd come from Montana and the schools were, you know, <laughs> two or three hundred kids, I guess. I don't know. So I hit the, hit the floor running and uh, had a good career at Oregon when I left. I was the all-time leading scorer at that time. And um, I got drafted by the Boston Celtics and, and then went from there. What is, what is the basketball dream at that point? Because when you're coming up, the NBA is not what it is today. It's, in fact, kind of in his infancy. Like, what, what is, when you're playing basketball, kids now are thinking, I want to go to the league. This is a very unattainable goal. What was that for you when the NBA is in its infancy? What are you dreaming for? Well, I was a basketball fan all my life. I liked all sports. Mm -hmm. But I just remember watching on Saturday afternoon in 1957 and 1958, and when I was 13 and 14 years old, and my parents were in Missouri, and I was a big St. Louis Hawks fan. Mm -hmm. And they were really good, and, but they always finished second, except for one year in 1958. In 57, the Celtics won their first championship in 58, and went to seven games, and St. Louis won, and I was really excited. And then in 59, they beat St. Louis. and uh, So I loved the game. It's, it's interesting. Logan, you said that because today guys are thinking about playing in the NBA and I'm, I'm not sure they have the same goals that I had or the same vision. They're thinking about making millions of dollars, I think, a lot of kids. We never thought about money. Money was a byproduct. I, I still have an old magazine from around 1960 and it was Bob Cousy from the Celtics and saying, you know, you're better off uh, going into business and you'll make more money in the long run <laughs> business than you ever will playing basketball yeah. because we just don't make that kind of money. And so when I got drafted by the Celtics, we didn't have a player association yet. Um, and it was, you kind of had to take what they offered you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got drafted by the best team in the league, but also the uh, president and GM was uh, Red Arback, and he was the cheapest SOB in the league. <laughs> and it's kind of take it or leave it. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. The second round draft pick, Leon Clark from Wyoming. Now, there were 10 teams, so I was the eighth pick. So once you get to the 11th pick, today that'd be a high first rounder, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's the start of the second round. So Leon Clark was the Celtics second round draft pick. And so Red Auerbach set me down. He brought me back there right after graduation and set me down. He said, let's talk about your contract. He said, before we do, I want to read a letter. Uh, from someone, it's a, anyway, it was from an attorney, and he went on to read it, representing Leon Clark from the University of Wyoming, your second round draft pick. What we had in mind was a two-year contract at $20,000 a year, et cetera, et cetera. And Red Auerbach looked at me and said, you know what I'm gonna do with this contract, son? I said, no, sir. And he tore it up right in front of me, the letter from the attorney, and threw it in the waste can. Now, I don't know what happened, but Leon Clark never came to training camp. He never played in the NBA. So was he blackballed? I, I mean, you would think he'd play somewhere. Maybe he went to Europe, I don't know. The ABA didn't come in for another year or two. And I never heard of him there, but he did not come to training camp. He was a second round pick, so he had to be anywhere from 11 to 20. And uh, he never came and he never played in the NBA, but that's kind of the way it was. How did you feel going into, um, you, know, you are the eighth pick, but you're going on a Celtics team that has won so many championships over that stretch. You got Bill Russell on the team, you talked about Red Auerbach, these are guys that are yeah. Legends already in their own right. Is there an inherent pressure that comes with that? How are you feeling? There was lots of pressure because I didn't have a guaranteed contract. You had to make the team. And uh, it was terrific. They had won eight straight championships. And fortunately, our back was not coaching anymore. He had resigned from that to stay in the front office. And uh, Bill Russell was player coach. Mm -hmm. 
the first time they ever kind of done that. And so I, pl I played for Russell, but you had to make the team. And the training camp was a month long. And we, in the second week, the night practice, you practice at 10 in the morning and six at night. The night practice became a full-fledged 48-minute game, greens against the whites, and you go out through the, around the New England area and play in a high school gym, a real game. And there was a lot of pressure because you had to perform. Uh, and they, he'd charge you know, a buck or a buck and a half for the people to get in, and they'd make money that way. We played eight of those intra-squad games, full 48-minute games, Bill Russell and everybody. Oh, my gosh. And then we had 15 exhibition games where you're playing St. Louis, or you're playing Philadelphia, <laughs> or you're playing New York. Ready for this, Logan? We played 12 games, exhibition games, in 12 straight nights in 10 different states. Oh, goodness. Traveling mostly, this before the season began. Right, what is the travel like for yeah. we, Well, we were traveling by bus and we'd go, we, you know, we'd be in one city in Tennessee and go two hours down the road to another city. And then we'd go over to Kentucky and then we'd go down to North Carolina and South Carolina. Took a couple of plane rides, but we played 15 exhibition games, of which 12 were in 12 straight nights in 10 different states. And you, by the way, we're traveling on the bus with the other opposing team. Maybe you'd play Philadelphia three, three nights in a row. You'd hit different places. They were traveling with you on the bus. So Wilt Chamberlain's on the bus because he was on that team, that great team, that year. That's just the way it was. And so when you're saying, was there pressure? You know, I think kids today, they're in the eighth grade saying, I'm going to play in the NBA. You know, we never thought about playing in the NBA. We knew it was going to be very tough to make it. Um, and you didn't have a guaranteed contract, so you're, you're playing your, your rear end off. And uh, there was a little, lot of insecurity. And so I, you know, but I, I was in shape. I was, you know, 50 pounds lighter than this. I was quick. And I could score, and I could get to the basket and do all the things. I had talent. And, and I made the team. I remember one time, I was a little... A little nervous, obviously, and Russell brought me in after an exhibition game somewhere. We, I don't know where we were, but he said, Rook, he, he, he was a no-nonsense guy. You know, he, says, he, he says, you're driving me nuts. He said, just relax. You're going you're, you're gonna to make the team. <laughs> so that made me feel a lot better. Yeah. Wow. That's probably exactly what you needed to hear. I did, yeah. It, it really helped. Yeah. And so you're traveling around the country, 12 exhibition games, riding the bus. <laughs> what was the season like then? The, well, the frequency um, of games. And that, and that year, they added Chicago. That was 1966-67, my rookie year. So there had been nine teams for quite a while. There, years ago, there had been eight teams for a long time. But they had nine teams for quite a while, and they added Chicago. So that means you play each team nine times, and that was an 81-game schedule. And that's the last year they ever had of an 81-game schedule. And, and the next year, 67-68, they went to an 82-game schedule, same as it is today. Um, but we played four and five nights in a row. The, sh the schedule, you, you started in middle of October, you ended mid middle of March. Uh, it was condensed. And uh, you flew, when we were in Boston, because Red Auerbach was the cheapest son of a gun you'd ever meet. Uh, I think I've kind of hinted at that. He was a bully. You know, he was, kind of, he was oh yeah, he had, a, he had a big ego and he, he liked to, you know, let you know about that. But we flew the day of a game. So we would fly from Boston to New York and play the Knicks that night. A lot of times we played doubleheaders. We might play the Knicks, but the first game was Detroit and Baltimore in Madison Square Garden, the old garden. And um, so we'd fly in, we'd take a, a 7.30 flight in the morning, and we'd go to a hotel in New York because we had day rates. So you didn't have to pay a night, overnight rate. You okay. had day rates to <laughs> save money. Yeah. Uh, no kidding. And uh, so... Uh, well, I could just go on and tell you so many stories about that, but it was, you know, it, it was very different than it is today. Mm 
And when you did fly, you flew commercial. And I remember Bill Russell sitting in the seats, and Bill was funny anyway, but <laughs> I can't say y'all what he said, but we're on the Eastern Airlines and the shuttle, you know, the people are going down to New York for the, for the day for the, to work and everything. And some guy in front of Bill Russell would put his seat back, and Russell would yell and he'd say, damn, and then they'd look around, it's Bill Russell. Yeah, so it was. There were just uh, a lot of incidents like that. We played uh, a card game. There would be uh, seats like say uh, thirteen, fourteen, and thirteen, fourteen here. And those guys, they'd always sit like that, and they they play cards for a little bit of money. You know, a little one, one and two dollars and things like that. They did that a lot. Um, but it was, uh, you know, the locker room. I'll tell you. I'm, I hope I won't. You have to censor this, but. We, they knew they were all veterans. I mean, Sam Jones was 34. Russell was 34. They'd won eight straight championships. My roommate, Bailey Howe, we had roommates then. Uh, Bailey Howe was 31. And they expected you to know how to play. And it's, so we didn't have pregame talks. And I remember one time uh, we were going to this city in the Midwest. And, he, this was, and Bill, mess, he knew who we played, but we were messing around. So that we always had a security man come in and say, 20 minutes before game time, and that was the cue to go out and warm up. We never went out and shot early, never shot early. You just went out 20 minutes before game, did your shooting, warm-ups, and all that stuff. And so he looked around the room, the guy came in, and he said, okay, thank you. He said, who are we playing tonight? Chicago? No, that's not it. Uh, Boston? I mean, excuse me, uh, New York? And uh, no, that's not it. He said, Detroit. We're playing Detroit. Let's go out there and get the over with. And that's the pre, that's a pregame talk. Yeah. And, you know, but he expected you to go out and do your job. Well, I mean, you've obviously covered the Warriors during this stretch. How was that in comparison to as far as fanfare going around this team? Because obviously the Celtics were the best of that era. Yeah. How was it traveling with the Bill Russell and a, a Bob Cousy and, and just in that aura? Um, as I say, we, we flew second class, so people left us alone, and, and uh, I do remember – Sometime, Bill Russell did not sign autographs. And, um, you know, and I would watch that and everything because I found it intriguing. And I just remember he told me one time this businessman asked for an autograph. And, and a lot of things happened in those days, by the way. And Boston, even though they'd won those championships, they didn't sell out at the Boston Garden. They sold out at the Boston Garden for the hockey team, the Boston Bruins. Mm -hmm. Every game was sold out but not the Boston Celtics, and it was a racist town. It was still a racist town. And something happened where Bill Russell moved into a new house in a predominantly white neighborhood, and I'm not gonna go into the details of that, but he, he took some awful, awful things that had to take that, and it, very demeaning. And I just remember Bill Russell told me one time, looked at me right now, he said, I don't sign autographs. He said, yeah, and guys like that, he said, if I weren't Bill Russell of the Boston Celtics, I'd be another just another to him. That's exactly what he said to me. And uh, I just always remember that. It, it hurts me today a little bit. Well, Tell you the truth, it, it hurts. It really does. They were, those, they were the greatest. They really were. How did you deal with that? You're obviously a white male. How did your perception on race change being alongside Bill Russell? Um, I, my dad was in the Air Force, and he was not an officer. Uh, my dad ran away from home, didn't finish high school, later on he did. And so he had worked in, with blacks and whites together all the way as a sergeant in the Air Force for 32 years. 
And we lived in Georgia, by the way. I was, uh, I was born in South Carolina. We lived in Georgia from my age five through 10. Uh, and I went to segregated schools. But at home, I had a different indoctrination. And so when I came to California and the schools were integrated, I had no, that was 1954, because mm -hmm. I was born in 1944, so I was 10 in 1954. There was no problem for me at all. I never thought a thing about it. And so when I started playing Little League and uh, the kids on my team, some, some blacks and stuff, and they were on the way to my if, my, if their parents worked and needed a ride or something, we'd pick up and it, 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 it just was a natural thing for me. Um, I'm, I'm glad I was never that way, but there's still being white and in that era, there's still a little, everyone was, there's a little bit of bias, prejudice and everything inherent in, in just in the culture. And I, I will say when I came into the league, there had been a quota you know, I mean, I'm talking, I was mid-60s. It wasn't too long before that, there was a quota. You couldn't have more, maybe more than two or three blacks. I know that for a fact. I know for a fact that when the Celtics played earlier on in, in the late 50s and the early 60s, and they went down south. I, I, Bill Russell told me this story. They go down south to play an exhibition game. And sometimes you got in, you didn't have time to go to a hotel or anything. You went right to the gym. We did that in, during the regular season. And they went to the gym to play this game. I don't know who they were playing. But the mayor came out and gave them a key to the city and all that stuff. And then the game was over. They went to the hotel. And the blacks couldn't stay in that hotel. They had to go somewhere else. Bill Russell took that key and found the, where the mayor lived at 2 in the morning and rapped on the front door and gave the key back to the mayor in that town, in that southern town. There were things like that. So when I came into the league, I'd say the league was probably... 75% white, mm -hmm. and when I left, it was probably 65, I haven't looked it up, but it, it was predominantly black. It changed in my, in my 11 years from 66 through 77, a vast change. You know, the, first of all, when I came in, there were 10 teams. When I left, there were 23 teams. Now there are 30, so that changed. The, there was a whole, that was the, that whole revolution, you know, starting civil rights in, in 1964 when I was a sophomore in college. I remember uh, some of our black football players going down to Montgomery, Alabama uh, for the bus, bus rides and uh, all kinds of things were, were happening then. And so in the 66 and the 68, you know, the riots in Chicago and everything. So I was in the middle of all that, Logan. And, um, but, but we played a sport, we played together. And this, the Celtics, they were the first one to ever have a black player uh, in the NBA in the early 50s. And they had a couple of them and Chuck Cooper was one. Um, so this, the, Boston was different as far as Red Arback and that, and, and, and you know, they made, he made, Red Arback made Bill Russell player coach. That was unheard of. Mm -hmm. He was the first black professional coach in any sport. Um, so, I mean, I, there, were, there were times that, at, at different times uh, through the league, and it would work both ways. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've had racist remarks thrown at me during those times. Uh, How so? Um, why or how so? Or, yeah, what happened? Well, I've had a, a guy tell me if you weren't white, you wouldn't be in the league. Hmm. You know, if you, were, if you weren't white, you wouldn't have never made the league. This guy was just trucking trash to me one time, but it's a racist remark. Uh, you know, I, I laughed at it because I just next time down the court beat his ass to the rim. So yeah. <laughs> that's the way I look at it. Anyway, did, did, did just, a, lot of, a lot of changes then. Yeah, yeah. Did you, one more question on the subject. Did, when you see Bill Russell going through these things uh -huh. firsthand, I mean, as a white person, do you, does that make you more sympathetic to the cause? How does that 
put a battery in your back to say, nah, this isn't right. This isn't well, supposed to be happening. Of course you felt that way, but um, I'm not, at that time, I'm just trying to play the game of basketball and I let him handle it the way he's handling things. And, and I remember standing in the snow and, and it's five degrees in Chicago waiting for the taxi to go to the game and someone had asked him for an autograph. I saw, I saw him sign one time. It, I, it, I just, uh, the, all that he's going through like that, Logan, it was just, I'm not gonna change everything right then. I just conduct myself the way I, I feel and the way I live my life. And so, uh, you know, I didn't feel that way. I didn't, it, it didn't affect me. It didn't affect me. Uh, it affected me, I didn't like it. Um, and, and I felt for Bill Russell and I felt for everybody, but you know, we had our own group and our own team and we were all brothers together. And so we, I don't know, it, it's a different time. It was a different time, but most of the time I was just worried about my career and trying to make a name for myself in the NBA so I could play and, and stay around for at least 10 years. That was my goal. What did you think about seeing two Americas that way via sports? We, we weren't as, Gareth, we weren't as cognizant of everything at that time. The, uh, everything wasn't out there. We, you didn't have social media. You, you didn't have awareness of a lot of things. And, you know, I mean, Bailey Howell and John Havlicek and Don Nelson and myself weren't going to go out and march in New York City with pickets. And, you know, it, we just didn't do that. It was a, it was a slow transgression. It was a, it was a slow process of, of, of change and so forth. And that, that's just a small part of what we went through. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously Martin Luther King and all of that. And it's... it's uh, you know, but I, I wasn't in the middle of all that. I was playing in a sport with blacks and whites, but we didn't have any problems. You know, they're trying, the guys I played with and against, well, they're trying to make a living in the NBA just like I was. And uh, it was, we were all the same. And I, I'm trying to beat out a guy. I didn't care whether he was black or white. I want to beat him out because I don't want him to take my job and, and vice versa. What was the fame like at that time? There was no, what was... the fame was inconsequential. It was, you know, my first contract is $11,000 and a $500 signing bonus. The minimum was $7,500. Um, it wasn't that big a deal. We were normal. Uh, I, I used to love baseball. I read Summer of 49 and then The Boys of Summer about the Brooklyn Dodgers and Duke Snyder and they're living in Brooklyn. They'd walk down the street and they, were, they lived in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It was different. That was the 50s, in fact, in those days. But, um, you know, we... When, when I came to the Warriors, they weren't, we weren't on TV, except national TV, once in a while I'd be on TV, but not that much, yeah. um, and locally not that much. And so it, the league was in the embryonic stage, mm -hmm. it was in the embryonic stage. And as I say, the, uh, today you fly your own jet, you know, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's the team leased jet, you, it's you know, first class for everybody. They feed you all day long. They feed you breakfast. They feed you lunch. They feed you uh, after the game. We had to go find our own meals. No one. Gave, we had to go at, at three o'clock in the afternoon in New York and find something to eat on your ten dollar a day meal money in 1966. 
Okay, and so they expected you. It, it just is what the way it was. Yeah, it's like sports science is so different now. Like with what kind of diets players have, how much sleep yeah. they get, hydration. Oh, uh, was hydration? I don't want to make an assumption. Was it beer back in the day? Jim? Oh, we had beer in the locker rooms, of course. We all had beer. Yes, we had mm -hmm. beer in the locker rooms. Uh, but I remember, <laughs> I remember when I was a San Diego Rocket the next year, we came to Boston, and we were at, at the airport about 7 in the morning, 7.30 in the morning, and I was with my, my teammates, and Red Auerbach came by, and we were eating pancakes. Now, we're going to play that night at 7 or 8 o'clock. So a lot of times we played 8 o'clock, even later. And he read the riot act to us and About said, because we were eating pancakes on the day of a game. <laughs> And he said, if you were on my team, I'd fine you all. And you know, as I said, he was a bully and he, he liked to pump his chest out and everything. But we're eating pancakes at seven in the morning and we're not playing for 12 hours. And he's worried about that. And they wanted you to eat steak on the day of a game. It was hard <laughs> to eat steak on the day of a game when you get $10 a day meal money. Right. Yeah, but that's what you were, you know, meal, you know, in, in college, we had a pregame meal on, we, our games were on Fridays and Saturdays, and we had a pregame meal and there were always steaks. Yeah. You well, know, four hours before game time. How, well, you did talk about that, like, what about the expansions to the West Coast? How did that kind of affect your travel? Because you know, like, when, well, when the Lakers come, when Lakers good, pop up? And, Logan, that's a good question because there were only two teams out there, San Francisco and Los Angeles. And then they added my second year in the league. I went in the expansion draft to the San Diego Rockets and also the uh, Seattle Sonics. Those were two new teams, made four, it made a 12-team uh, league. Um, and I will tell you right now, that first year in San Diego, we made nine separate trips to the East Coast for games. And we played. I remember this because I've looked at it. You can go to basketballreference.com and look it up in 1967-68. And we played a game in L.A., a game in San Diego the next night, flew to New York and played that night, and then played Boston, and then played Detroit five nights in a row. Oh and then flew home. Goodness. All commercial. All commercial, second class. Then we flew home and we had two days. One was a fly day. We had two days and we played the same thing. We played five nights in a row. And I remember which way, you know, in the middle of it, you went to the West Coast or the East Coast. So you either gained three hours or you lost three hours, mm -hmm. okay? But we played 11 games in 13 nights during that stretch. And another time oh, we played five nights in a row. So three times during that year, we played five nights in a row. And as I say, a lot of them were double headers. And you go to Detroit and play a double header. You go to Chicago and play a double header. Uh, but the travel, yeah, we had to, in order to just fulfill, you know, the number of games and the number of the teams that you play and the equal time and everything, we had to fly from San Diego nine separate times to the East Coast. Wow. That's just the way it was. Yeah. I'm looking at some notes. You played 11 years in the NBA with seven teams. The Warriors were one of those teams. And now you're a Warriors broadcaster. You've been a Warriors broadcaster since 1985. You're talking about our lifespan here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, how do you describe the kind of basketball, the, all of the basketball you have seen? It, That's such a tough question for you, I imagine. Well, it, it all blends in. And, and I, you know, Tim is a basketball, Tim Roy, our radio announcer, whom I'm working with now on the road, is a basketball historian. And, and, and he and Bob Fitzgerald are guys that wanted to play basketball but weren't big enough, weren't good enough, and so they become announcers. That's what happens a lot. Yeah. They become play-by-play -play announcers. And so they know, you know, Tim and Bob remember more about all the years than I do because 
I, I, do, I just would go do my job and I would forget it. And that's why I never got down on the years when the Warriors were 17 and 65 and 19 and 63. It didn't bother me that much. I didn't like it. I root for the team and so forth. But I just, I go out and do my job, which was to call the game. As mm -hmm. soon as it's over, I forget it and, I, and it's the next game. And I always think you're going to win, just as a player. And I was on a San Diego Rocket expansion team. We were 15 and 67 my second year in the league, 1967-68. And so we got the number one draft pick, which was Elvin Hayes, which I have a story about that, which I think is pretty interesting. It involves the Warriors, by the way. But um, I, you know, I've just done, done, done the games. Each game is a different game, and I looked at it that way. And uh, I don't know, it's just flown by, I'll tell you, Kareth. I don't know where the years have gone, but I thoroughly enjoyed every one of them. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I felt, I'm very grateful, first of all, for having, I almost quit one time because I wasn't Why? making any, well, I didn't, I was offered $750 back in 1985 <laughs> to do the games. We we're gonna do 20 games. And then it went to the president and he came back and he said, well, he can only pay you 400. Hmm. So that was kind of a bummer. And it took me about four years to work up to 700, you know? <laughs> and I was still had a full-time job, by the way. I, for years, for at least, I would say, 15 to 18 years, I had a full-time job where I worked all day long and went out on sales calls and I'd run over to the you know, Coliseum that night and do a game and would go on the road periodically. Sometimes I flew home if I didn't have to do a few games and then flew back because I had clients. I was a straight commission which, salesman. Which, oh, so I, I, I was a salesman for a, in advertising. And uh, I can remember being in, in, in Houston and uh, playing the Rockets and I had to re interview Rudy Tomjanovich in about 10 minutes and I'm talking to some uh, client at Fireman's Fund Insurance back in Novato, California <laughs> on the phone and I'm selling them 500 coffee mugs with a two color imprint and we're talking about that and they want to make sure it gets there <laughs> and I hung up the, the pay phone, we didn't yeah. have cell phones in, hung up the pay phone and ran over and did the interview with Rudy Tomjanovich. But, so I, I was making more money in sales than I ever was you know, in, in broadcasting. What did you like about broadcasting? The excitement kept, well, kept me because yeah. I love basketball. Mm -hmm. I've always had a great love for basketball. I was a basketball junkie. You know, I, in high school, I, I played in all the leagues I could possibly play in the summertime and against, you know, and play, by the way, Jerry Tarkanian, who became very famous later on, as we know, uh, was a junior, he was the coach of my junior college in high school at Riverside. Uh, as I was graduating, he came in, because he was in actually my high school league. He was a coach in my high school league, Jerry Tarkanian was, so I knew him very well. And he wanted me to go to junior college. There was no way I was gonna do that, but he went out and got these guys from Detroit, primarily black players, who were older, 19, 20, 21, they're coming to junior college. And of course, he won the state championship. They were 32 and three uh, that next year when I was a freshman at Oregon. The next year, they were 35 and 0. Um, but I played with those guys. I'd, in the summertime, I played all the time. Uh, you know, played one-on-one -on -one with these guys who were two or three years older, mm -hmm. and they made me a hell of a lot better. Yeah. I played one-on-one -on -one a lot, and that's what we did. And the guys don't, they don't, uh, that's where I learned my moves and learned how to, how to read a defense and all that kind of thing. So um, I wanted to tell you, though, about the story, if I can. Yeah, go ahead. About when I was at the San Diego Rockets, now we got Elvin Hayes, who was a great player. He led the, he led the league in scoring his rookie year at 28 a game, a little over 28. So he was going to meet Bill Russell, and I can't remember what it was for the first time, but it was a matchup between Bill Russell of the Boston Celtics and Elvin Hayes, and they played it at the Astrodome in Houston. 41,000 people came. I still have the little uh, 
a memento that to commemorate that, that night. And so what they did is they took a, a wooden floor, you know, portable, and they put it in the middle of the football field. Like they did the game of the century. Yeah. Yeah, UCLA. Houston. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. And they didn't bring the stadium. It was a football stadium. So, put it so the closest <laughs> fans were, I don't know, 40 <laughs> or 50 yards away. Yeah. And, and so we played there the next year, by the way, and they got 20,000. They cut it in wow. half. And they finally brought some seats up. But at any rate, that game was the Celtics against the San Diego Rockets. Well, their colors are green and white. Ours are green and white. By the way, we always took care of our own road uniform. The, the team never took care of a uniform. You had to wash it out on your own. Or hope, How did that hope, work out? Uh, well, you, know, you had to do your own laundry <laughs> on the road. So and so anyway, we were, we were the home team. But our, our, our trainer, who took care of the, he's the equipment manager too, didn't bring our home uniforms. So we both had green uniforms. Well, you can't play a game with everybody's in the same color or green. And so the San Francisco Warriors had played the first game. It was a doubleheader. They yeah. played, I think, Detroit or Philly. I think it was Detroit. I don't remember. But they had their gold uniforms. Well, but they, here's how they decided that one team, the Celtics could wear their road uniform greens, and the San Diego Rockets were going to wear the jerseys of the San Francisco Warriors because they were gold. Nasty. That's gross. And we did. And we went out. And I, unlike, we were trying to get, everybody was trying to get a jersey of someone who didn't play yes. so it would be dry. I got oh. Joe Ellis, and I think he had 29 points. <laughs> and it was, was sopping wet. And I'm telling you how hard it is to put on a jersey that is sopping wet to pull over your dry body. It, it was creepy. Ew. And I, I did it. And I remember warming up, and there's no depth perception, yeah. Logan, to the basket. You're yeah. shooting, and you're going, holy mac, I'm shooting air balls, and because there's no depth perception. So I, you know, I was a driver anyway, so I said, well, I'm going to drive tonight. I'm not going to do that. Anyway, the Celtics won, but I, had a, I got hot, and I had a good night. And so it's, it's kind of a funny story because you can look it up. I got 31 in the game and against the Celtics. We lost. So that night... Because Joe Ellis had 29 that night, the jersey went for 60. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the jersey went for 60. And, and uh, anyway, so once I got warmed up and sweating myself, I didn't mind. But that would never happen no. in the NBA today. That's what I'm saying. No. This is the NBA. And we had to wear San Francisco Warriors jerseys. And we were the San Diego Rockets. That's so gross. It was Jim, very gross. I love that in this conversation, you're like, can I tell you a story? Can I tell you a story? Yes. We will never interrupt you telling a story. But we do need to get you on one thing. Yeah. It's the transition um, of Kalena, somebody that you've helped become a broadcaster. Yeah. I love the way you talk about him. I love the way he talks about you. Um, what do you think about Kalena embarking on, on his television I can, career? You know, as you can see when I was talk about Bill Russell and the things that uh, were should never have happened in those days that did I, I'm a very sentimental guy I'm, I'm very emotional I love and, and I love Kalena mm -hmm. and and I, I remember when he first called me and it was really a strange thing because his agent called me years ago and said uh, to me he said you know I was wondering could Kalena come in and do a game and, and take your place for a game and and, 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 and I said, well, I don't pull the string. You know, I don't yeah. have the cards on that. I said, so you're asking me, I said, you're asking me, could Kalena come in and then potentially take my job? And uh, so let me clip, make it clear. I said, you got to call, uh, you know, NBC Sports Bay Area, which they weren't called, they were something else, whatever. I said, you, I, I have no authority doing that. So at any rate, but Kalena called me and we had a nice conversation. I always liked Kalena, he was a class guy. And I always felt badly for him because I remember when he hurt his knee yes. in Milwaukee. 
And it was early in the season. He's averaging about 15 a game. And no one's around him. He came in and made that plant and, and just blew out his knee. For, and, and he was never the same. So he had a, a curtailed career. And he was good. He was getting better. And um, so I, I, I felt something in my heart for him there. So, and, and I just knew who he was. And I mean, what kind of person he was when I say who. I mean, I know him as a, as a man. And so I remember telling him, and I'd forgotten, but he reminded me. I said, yeah, you know, that's, that's a good idea. I'd love you to come work in the Bay Area and then maybe in four or five years take my job. Mm-hmm. And he remembers that. I'd kind of forgotten about it, but that's exactly what happened. It, 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 it was like a prophecy. Yeah. But it happened because you wanted to see him succeed. You wanted oh, yeah. to help him. Yeah. He was going to shadow you. Yeah. He was going to learn from the best. Yeah. And now this is the Yeah, the and I, I think it was a great time for me. At the time, it, it kind of caught me off guard in the summertime when I heard the news or, uh, by, via phone call. Hmm. And I was kind of shocked. And, uh, Wait, and I wasn't you, ready. To, I wasn't ready. To, are you talking about this summer? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. Okay. This last summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't ready uh, for those that news. I didn't know that's what was going to transpire. But once I got used to it and everything, and and uh, you know my schedule is a lot lighter, uh, which I'm kind of liking at my age. You know, it's not as easy as it was 20 years ago. Yeah. And uh, I like traveling, and so I think it's the right thing. And I think that Kalina. Uh, being who he is and how well-spoken he is and how good-looking he is, he's a hell of a lot better looking than the previous guy. I you know, no, he's, no, he's, Clint is, he's got class and everything and he's mm-hmm. just, he handles himself. He's got this natural boyish enthusiasm too. He's a good man That's and so nice. I'm really happy for him. And I think it's right because somebody else might have grabbed him. And so the transition to Chase Center uh, is super and uh, he's, uh, as I say, Clint, I hope you do it as long as I mm-hmm. do it, okay? But just remember, if that does happen, if that does happen, you're gonna be in your 70s. <laughs> he can't even think about that. And did it feel, did it, you talked about earlier about the call, how did that, did you feel weird? I'm talking about the summer, did you feel weird when that happened? Because I mean, this is something, I can say, speak personally, like I grew up watching you. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew yeah. up, um, you were the voice of the Warriors, and is it weird to just have it suddenly not be, happened? Well, it was sudden there, but it, it, it almost happened five years before and didn't work out. And so, no, as you get older and everything like that, and the changes, change is inevitable and change is good. Change is good for your life, even if, even if you don't agree with it the first time. As I say, I was prepared to go over and do my job like I, I always been doing. It. Um, and so it took a little adjustment period. And luckily I had a couple of months in the summer, summer luckily. And, um, you know, I, I've kind of grown accustomed to it and now I, I kind of like it because I never did like putting makeup on and everything and having to deal with that <laughs> and you know, now I can come I don't have to wear a tie on, on the radio but uh, so no you, you accept things I mean everything Logan in life I've had a hell of a lot of things uh, more tragic than that happen to me um, I've been very fortunate in my life in so many ways um, but we're all gonna have you know uh, tragedies and so forth but as I say that that's 34 years on television uh, that's everything is all green and yeah. and copacetic and really nice and I'm still employed at my age and uh, it's hard I don't feel like I'm 75 but I am and that's the reality of things uh, so anyway it, no it's, it's all good and I think it was a great decision that the timing was right for everybody concerned and I'm happy for Kalena um, he's gonna have a long bright career and uh, it's fun to see him grow. 
Yeah, fans just want to make sure when they ask us about you because yeah. you are a favorite. Like Logan grew up with you. People know who you no, are. I understand they that. They just want to make sure. Is Jim happy? Yeah. Is does he like yeah. how everything has played out? I am, and and so there's no no problem with that. Kalina's going to be fine. Get used to him. I know people. I understand. You know, uh, I grew up in Southern California, and I you know listen to the Dodgers and Vin Scully. So He's he the be, guy. they become part of your soul, and I understand. Uh, if you are, you know, I did it for 34 years, so anybody who was born during that time, who are now 40 years old, they grew up with me, and I'm part of that fabric. And, it, and it's, it's kind of a, you're not really aware of it until you're gone, until they're gone. But it does leave something, hold it, something missing a little bit, and it takes time to get used to someone else, I think. We are so thankful that you are still a Warriors broadcaster. You can be heard on the radio. We're glad you're traveling with the team because I would die if I didn't have these insults. Uh, sorry, insights. Insights, Jim. Excuse me. I get to sit in front of Jim on the plane. We talk about all sorts I've of things. I've only insulted you once or twice. I, <laughs> I said the wrong word. But that's how I know you love me, and I appreciate that, and we love you. And thank you so, so much for all of your stories today. This conversation went by in a flash. Oh, I know. I can't believe it's yeah. uh, already it's, over here. What didn't yeah. get to talk about our team, which what a great opportunity for all these young kids. Mm -hmm. I know what it's like because I was like that, you know, my you know, first and second year in the league, and, yeah. and it's a great opportunity. We were on an expansion team, so you had all the chance in the world. Uh, I did, and that's what these they're uh, getting right now, so it's fun to see them. Thank you hey, so thank you. much. We're so glad we had you on. Thanks for having place. me. You're welcome. We'll do it again.